0: what's so funny about Duxiatis is that he pinpoints a date, which I love the bombastic boldness of that. He's like, it happened on September 26th, 1825, the day that the first public passenger rail went in the UK and it took people from one city to another. And he said, from that point on, cities were never the same, right? All of a sudden, they could work in systems.
1: I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. 360 Degree City is brought to you by the team at Intelligent Futures. We're a team of versatile urban problem solvers, and our aim is to figure out better ways of living together. From a small Nova Scotia town, to booming Barcelona, to the megacity of Jakarta, are there any laws that govern all human settlements? Are there consistent patterns that emerge where people live across scale and time? Back in the 60s, an architect and planner named Konstantinos Doxiadis explored this question. He sought to understand the complexity and growth of human settlements. In his 1968 book called Echistics, An Introduction to the Science of Human Settlements, Doxiati spent 527 pages proposing a science of settlements. Today, I'm talking with Eric Villa Gomez, an urban designer, professor, and writer in Vancouver who has revived and expanded on some of the elements of Doxiati's work. Maybe if we could start off, if you could uh, introduce yourself and what it is that you do. Um...
0: That, that's really a $1 million question, to tell you the truth. I think I do a number of different things. If I were to categorize things uh, into three parts, there would be the teaching component when I teach at two different schools, uh, the University of British Columbia at the School of Community and Regional Planning within the urban design stream. I teach at the opposite end of the scale at KPU, uh, the built world scale, I should say, uh, in the interior design program. Uh, so that's my teaching piece. Uh, my private practice piece is that I do uh, have a, uh, a consultancy slash private practice that deals with everything from kind of small scale architecture. So designing and building um, to urban design consulting. It's recently splintered uh, more little fingers out to, to include mm-hmm. illustration and um, and uh, kind of information architecture, information design. Hmm. Uh, And that's my other little pocket. And then the last one um, would be uh, the um, editor-in-chief of Spacing Vancouver, which is uh, a kind of subsidiary of the Spacing magazine uh, where I run the the local Vancouver branch uh, of the blog, the online blog, but also contribute to the magazine, uh, the print edition that comes out um, a couple of times a year.
1: In 2017, Eric self-published a book called The Laws of Settlements. Eric has always been curious about the relationship between settlements across scales, from the individual to the global. This interest eventually led him to create the book. When Eric started teaching environmental design, he was studying concepts across different scales. One day many years ago, he went into his colleague Ron's office.
0: I went into his office and I was just rambling off these ideas. I'm like, you know what, this is it's this whole thing about scale is super interesting. And, uh, there, are, there aren't many people that I found that I've written on it at that time. Um, I was reading, I'm still a bibliophile. Uh, so I read a hell of a lot of books. Hmm. So I had gone through these things and I never found one and, and Ron offhandedly was just like, actually, you know what? You should read, um, Constantino, Dox, Doxiatis, uh, and, and Echistics. you know, he figured it out a long time ago. Hmm. I'm like, I had never, A, I was surprised. Um, because that I had never heard of them. Because again, being a bibliophile, I heard of virtually everybody. Um, and B, it was coming from Ron, who again himself is no slouch. He knows a <laughs> hell of a lot of stuff. So I immediately went back home, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to go get this out of the library." Uh, it was nowhere to be found. I could only find it on um, online through a used book. It was through eight books, I believe, that I wound up getting this old kind of copy for out of print for X number of years for you know some ridiculous price and it, it shows up and uh I have it just a few feet away from me now. It's uh it's this giant kind of eight and a half by eleven uh just five hundred page book that is it's just extremely daunting to read. Like if you look at it you're like, oh my God, it is just it is something else. So uh in true form I just wound up reading it and I was going to I was like, oh my God, this guy's he really did. Um, a lot of amazing stuff. Um, and and towards kind of the middle and the end of the book, there's this little, I think it's only about 20 pages or so, uh, just a handful of pages out of this giant, giant read. And it's like, okay, you know what? We've come this far. I'm going to just offhandedly tell you the laws of all settlements. <laughs> and, and, and again, I'm like, this just is insane. Like, right when I read it, I'm like, this is nuts. I can't believe that He's going to do this. So I go through it, and they're only, again, bite sized. There are 54 laws, uh, and they are about one to two paragraphs each. Hmm. And he does it in 20 pages, and then that's it. That's all he says, literally. It's like, okay, I I hear the laws, let's move on. And since that time, I was like, this is just insane. Like, that someone would be, I I didn't even know how to feel about it. Because on the one hand, I'm like, "I, I just, is it? Possible is this guy just overly arrogant? I don't, I I didn't know what to make of it. So at that point in time, I wound up uh, just saying, you know what, I'm just going to keep these at the back of my mind as I'm teaching and I'm going to see how whether they're still around because he wrote this in 68. Um, and uh, I was like, okay. And over the years, after teaching again just more and more classes, I was like, oh my god, like he it turns out that he did kind of figure it out, Uh, although some things were kind of off. I was like, oh, you know what. That's that's interesting. I think more people should a know about this guy's name and B should know what he had achieved at this point in time. So what this the book started out as was literally a spacing blog piece. So this is the beginning of it. Hmm. And I wound up thinking and this was maybe about five years ago Then I'm like, oh, you know what? On my off time, I'm going to take these 54 laws. I'm going to make it into a blog and I'm going to maybe call it the laws of Solomon's blog. And each one will have maybe one or two. Uh, one or two uh, laws and I'm just going to explain it, uh, maybe update it um, and off to the races I go. It'll take, you know, a whole year in the making, Uh, you know, X number, you know, maybe release them every three or four weeks uh, and then just try and get through all 54. So I started kind of whacking them out. Uh, and I would do it on my spare time. So I'd have come back from work and I would just kind of plug a few things in, do one law, write a paragraph. If I didn't finish it, I didn't care. I'm like, Oh, whatever. It's only a blog post. I'll figure it out. Right. And then, you know, after about, I think it took me like two or three years. And the next thing I go, I go into my file and I'm like, Oh my God, there's like 30,000 words here. Like this (laughs) can, this can no longer be a blog post. This, it's just Out of the realm now, so all of a sudden I wound up thinking, "What the hell could I do with this thing?" and and I was like, "You know what? I have this thing here, and I I I had done again graphic design work and illustration, and I know InDesign really well." I'm like, "You know what? Why don't I just start trying to make it into a book myself?" Um, And that's where it took off, and I just started again, kind of slowly uh, building it up, creating the templates. I always wanted to go and to create my own book, just just to see what it was like. Right. Uh, uh, I didn't expect it to be like at that point in time, publishing the self-publishing thing wasn't big. It was just starting. So I had no ideas, thoughts to actually self-publish. It was more just, again, a, a kind of a labor of love, um, that I wound
1: up doing. And, uh, <laughs> and I, if you, and if you had 30,000 pages or words just sitting around, why not give it a try?
0: Well, give it a shot exactly
1: Why? <laughs> Eric's book is written in plain language making it accessible really to anyone he's divided it into different types of laws development, internal balance, and physical characteristics the laws focus on themes of creation, extinction, location, size, functions, structure, and form before Eric and I dive into some of the laws I'll tell you the first two Law 0, the overarching law, states that human settlements are scalar and codependent. Eric added to this to demonstrate the fundamental basis of Doxiadis' theories. No settlement exists in complete isolation. They're all accompanied by other settlements of varying shapes and sizes. Settlements are comprised of multiple units that form a complex whole. Think of small towns and villages that have been annexed into one large city. Law 1 is... Human settlements are the product of different forces and serve to satisfy the human needs of inhabitants and others. Further laws discuss how the needs of inhabitants can change over time, which results in the settlement changing as well. In this episode, Eric and I unpack a few of the laws of settlements, so let's dive right in. What is a settlement?
0: So a settlement is, uh, so I, it's mine, I'm going to converge with uh, with Doxiatis's and uh, and it really is um, kind of the foundation of uh, when people construct and deform the material world into something that is their own. And in, in Doxiatis' definition, the first kind of level of settlements is actually a single person. And then it goes up to kind of, uh, you know, village town, cities, mega cities, megalopolis And uh, ultimately what he saw uh, was the ecumenopolis, which was the world was effectively one giant city.
1: Hmm. Okay. Um, so if you're up for it, uh, let's dive into a few of the laws and chat about yeah, it. Sounds great. Cool. Okay. So let's start with uh, law number 13. Uh, I won't, I won't test you to, to, if you know exactly what each law, what, what the number of each law says. <laughs> <laughs> settlements are in a constant state of adaptation. And as such, time is a factor necessary for the development of settlements and is physically expressed within them. So question I wanted to explore with you was how does that law and the idea of change in time reconcile with the way that individual humans live their lives and respond to change? So where I'm going with that is, you know, in our, in our engagement practice, for example, um, the process of change, um, short term, long term particularly short term, um, is hard for people. Um, so uh, what, what are your thoughts about that law and how individual humans, uh, adapt to change over time?
0: Yeah, there's an, you know, it's an interesting, in many ways, these laws are, are extremely self-evident and that's what makes mm. it kind of like an interesting, but like uh, you can read the laws and be like, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And it kind of makes sense, but it, it's weird how it doesn't play itself out, in in reality um hmm. it, cities and settlements are always changing period they they never stop that yeah. it might look like it stops but it's not right so each each um settlement no matter at what time in history um all the way through the present and it seems to be even quickening in the present um, are always, always changing. And that perception that people have that, you know, whether it's, you know, I want my neighborhood to stay the same, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is actually a complete, uh, a, a complete illusion, right? Uh, mm-hmm. All of it always changing. And it actually comes from a place where people, we ourselves are changing all the time, right? Uh, you know, we're, Uh, getting older, where different parts of us are doing different things, they're developing in different ways. Uh, And cities actually reflect that, just like with anything else, right? So this idea that um, people have to adapt to it is actually fundamental to the development of it. If they stop, if they try to actually stop any of the, the development or kind of try and stop time, it actually leads to its failure, Right. Which is what, you know, one of the later uh, the later laws, when it talks about um, the death of settlements, uh, that's one of the main things. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't you can't actually fossilize a city without it losing its cityness, whatever, however you define that. Right now, you can you can try and fossilize it and make it into, say, a theme park and have people do things. But then it's not functioning anymore as a proper settlement. As proper settlement is dynamic. It always Mm -hmm. has. been, And it always will be.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, you know, in in our experience, you know, chatting with folks that are dealing with uh, navigating change in their neighborhoods. um, You know, it's not to say uh, that folks absolutely not to say that folks shouldn't get involved in in democratic processes. um, But the idea of um, constructively contributing to change because change is going to happen anyways is a very different conversation and mindset then I'm going to stop change um because that's just not going to happen um and one 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 of the things we joke about in in our office is is just the um this magic phenomenon that happens with a lot of folks it seems that um you know if if you were to sit, tell someone a city dweller that law they'd say oh yeah that like you said that that makes sense um but the magic moment that they uh purchase a home uh, they think that everything within eyesight of that home should be frozen in time. It seems <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. It, there was something kind of interesting. I was at a, of all things, a, a data visualization club yesterday, hmm. first, uh, first meeting kind of fun and geeky, cool. which I like. Yeah. And one of the visualization, uh, guys, we were just doing these tiny little presentations. Um, he wound up, uh, showing, uh, The change of housing, so he had all this data that he had scoured from census data, and he kind of, he mapped it onto Vancouver and was showing uh, the the teardown of homes since, uh, I think he put it yesterday from, I think, the 80s, 80s up until the present. And they were color-coded, and little kind of house icons were almost being extracted and funneled away from the map like a little, like dust, Right, like mm. just imagine that going, and it's creating this really wonderful infographic on the on the right hand margin. Mm. And at the end, as I'm watching this, I'm like, oh my god, if you if you actually fall, and they were color coded, I'm like, actually, there's nothing left of the city of what was in the 80s. It's like all mm-hmm. been torn down, and and yet here we are. Everyone's like, actually, you know, these city, you know, our neighborhood has to stay the same. It's like actually. It's gone. It's, it's yeah. it was gone like two years ago. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? for this, sure.
0: This idea that it's always changing, but it happens in such a way that most people don't recognize it. And like you're right, a lot of people when they you know they put their roots, so to speak, into a neighborhood, they believe that anything within eyesight, that's it. It has to stay the same. You know, uh, you know, on the on the next block over, whatever, tear that down, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know, in my eyesight, you kind of got to go and you got to try and maintain it. When in fact. Again, the healthy the healthy running of a city actually needs that. You need the turnover. You need things do fall apart, and they do need to be maintained. And they do like there's stuff that always has to happen.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and uh, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to keep in touch with you. And next time I'm in Vancouver, if I can crash the data visualization club, uh, I would love to nerd out with you.
0: <laughs> of course. <laughs> Have invitation, my friend. Open invitation.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned uh, some of the, the, the death related laws. Uh, there's a couple here, 15 and 17. I'll just quickly quote that the gradual death of a settlement begins when the settlement no longer serves and satisfies some of the basic needs of its inhabitants of or of the society in general as people move they carry their values with them and then 17 is in the death process of a settlement its elements do not die simultaneously simultaneously the same holds true for the values that it represents as a consequence the settlement as a whole has much greater chances of surviving and developing through renewal or even if some of the elements are dying. So I was wondering, curious, if you could provide a relatively modern example that reflects either one or both of those laws um, that people can can relate to.
0: Yeah, the, again, they're really kind of interesting and straightforward laws insofar that um, I think one of the most important laws actually is law number one, Uh, the, one of the early laws, obviously zero, the one that I put zero, which was my own edition that kind of summarized, you know, the 500 pages before his Mm -hmm. laws. Um, the one that kind of goes into satisfying its inhabitants is actually, and kind of adopting the value system of the inhabitants is arguably kind of the basis of everything. And I think if you truly think about that first law, uh, and let it sink in, it becomes more and more impactful. And it effectively kind of says, okay, the needs are shaped by a number of different things. There are physical needs, right? Straightforward, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to be safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But there are also other needs that wind up coming in in terms of value systems. And these begin to play themselves out uh, and formalize within the built environment. Now, what winds up happening over time is that naturally societies change, values change, and as those change, they necessarily have to change the environment in some way. Now, if the environment is not conducive to those changes, then it wound, winds up deteriorating in some way because people can no longer relate to it, right, at some mm-hmm. fundamental level, right? So, uh, and and, you know, it happens for better or for worse. Sometimes there are some amazing pieces of Urban fabric, let's just say, or, or architecture, let's just take, say, the traditional Japanese home, um, you know, with the tatami mats and like there was something so refined and beautiful about it. But when one started seeing kind of what the changes that were being made within society, things, you know, everything from wiring and all that different type of stuff, it can no longer maintain itself as uh, as a kind of, quote unquote, valuable so it begins to kind of go down. Um, now it's being reborn in different guises, but it's a completely different beast. It's a right. different, uh, it's a different, let's just call it a different species, right? Like maybe it had its roots back in the original one, but, you know, incomes, you know, fiber optics In incomes, you know, kitchens with appliances, income, all these other things that that old type of built environment never fostered or could not support when time came to change. Mm -hmm. Same happens with cities, right? So cities, uh, so that's a small scale example. And another one, you you see different neighborhoods. Let's just say, you know, post-industrial landscapes, right? Those once housed big industry and that, and everyone accepted them for those. But when that went down, all of a sudden people are like, actually, they're kind of ugly, right? Like we don't, we don't want it in this way. Like it, it has to change. And if it doesn't change, then people just kind of leave. Arguably the most extreme versions of these are kind of resource towns, right? Resource towns that are, okay, you know, this, the, its whole purpose for being, what it's doing is extracting resources. That's why people are there. That's why for the bigger societal good, whether it's coal or whatever it is, we extract. Once that's done, that's it, right? Yep. If there's nothing more to hold people there, then it's just relinquished. Uh, so you see a whole bunch of uh, ghost Ghost towns, so to speak, uh, and some of which have actually been revived as tourist hubs or, you know, however modern society has reinterpreted them in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So that's where it leads to kind of the death process can happen at a number of different levels Um, that sometimes it could be the buildings that go derelict. So let's just say in these older coal resource towns. It goes down, but then someone years later, and this is where so the values are gone and that the whole kind of societal system is there, but the buildings are still there for X number of years after. Long enough for let's just say a developer who's into developing theme towns, come in and say, actually, this, this, I'm gonna rehash this as a theme town that people could that's gonna draw tourists, so it's gonna get new life again. So you wind up seeing that. Because different facets work on different time frames, right? You'll mm-hmm. see that these things can actually outlive something. And that's what winds up happening with settlements of all forms, right? Sometimes they go down, they come up. You know, if you look at all the the mighty empires, they had their their mighty cities that, that have each gone down. Like Rome when it was up, then it went down, then it goes up, and, and it, it kind of continues because of Uh, let's just call it the hangover of all these different facets that are working in tandem and that fail or die effectively over different periods of time. People's societally values can change quickly, but buildings can stay around for thousands of years, depending on how they're built, right? Which gives them more time to stay around, hang around enough for someone, you know, hundreds of years into the future to potentially say, actually, this is we're going to rehash this. And now this comes into our value system in a different way. And it's valid again.
1: hmm. hmm. OK, so one of the, the laws I want to explore with you is is uh, number 25. And it talks about scales. And it states that across all scales of, of settlement, achieving balance within the range of the human scale is critically important for its long term success. The scale corresponds to the extent of one's control as well as the body and senses, roughly a ten-minute walking distance. Uh, a recent episode we had on the uh, on the podcast <clears throat> talked with folks in the uh, Washington D.C. Uh, region talking about the challenges of transportation and mobility across that whole capital region, which houses ten million people and fifty-three counties and three states, and and the complexity and scale is daunting to understand and plan for. Um, so in, in an age of, uh, urbanization and mega cities, um, can you talk about the tension between understanding these massive systems that are required to, uh, look after 10 million people and the need for human scale, um, developments and spaces?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And uh, as I write in the book, there's, you know if if someone said this say even just 20 years ago they would say you know if doxiatus you were out to lunch like that's just you don't need scale right because you're building these cities at that time as it was kind of just trudging through the you know 20 30 40 years ago where scale wasn't really a consideration right and that is yeah. like I, I, what settlements can actually exist without a human scale component to it um, but now again as we're seeing over time that, that human scale is actually more fundamental it seems uh than an uh, initially initially anticipated uh, that you know the environments that people seek out now that all of that um initial build out has kind of lived on kind of proven itself et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. people are always going back to those environments that have that scale associated with it that there is something about um You know, the ability to walk somewhere, these distances kind of begin making sense, Uh, the ability to to touch and smell things as you go across, which is very different than, you know, when you're in a car cooped up in the uh, in the little machine versus, you know, hearing the ramble of people in 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 a cafe smelling, you know, fresh baked goods as you pass by uh, a bakery. These things are becoming more and more important again. So they're almost Mm -hmm. being kind of vibed, which Again, makes me think uh, that there is something fundamental about it. I think that it like the fact that it, it 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 went and now it's back and it seems to be almost stronger than before. You have you know, people like Jan Gale, etc., that are that are just have described even the science behind it.
1: Jan Gale is a Danish architect and urban designer who's known for improving the quality of life in cities by focusing on designing for the pedestrian and the cyclist instead of cars. He's recognized for his rigorous methods for studying public life and designing cities at a human scale.
0: Right like why do you do people enjoy these environments it's you know it deals with the limitations of the senses things that you can see things that you can smell things that you can hear that there's a, a kind of renewed Uh, a revival of that as an idea and obviously the 10 minute walking distance has become now a staple of the
1: transit oriented developments. Transit oriented development also known as TOD is a form of urban development where the amount of residential business and leisure space is maximized in areas that are walking distance to transit. TOD hopes to decrease car use and increase walking cycling and public transit use. Um, that,
0: again, he was touting in 68. He, he, had, he had already wound up going and saying, actually, based on his studies, which were groundbreaking at the time, um, these are the parameters within which people feel comfortable and these environments succeed. Now, what, what he also states, which is, I guess, the, the crux of the problem, and I think that this is going to be the crux of the problem of cities, period, uh, I'd say over the next at least century or two, is that – how does it work when it goes? It amasses into these giant, giant systems, mm-hmm. right? Uh, where you know what a city is. You know, you know if you look at, let's just say the the old town of Barcelona, Barcino. Um, you know that you can walk around that in. These maximum five minutes—you could go from one side to the other in five minutes, right? Yep. All of a sudden, yep. it kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and now it's just effectively it's global in many ways. If you count, you know, transportation systems like airplanes that bring people across the globe, um, that these systems now are how they how the human scale kind of fits in. Um, arguably, is becoming more relevant, more important, and and more ambiguous. Like, how does it how does it work now? The the idea of having say high streets. So it's adopting old forms into new modes, right? Mm -hmm. Like the high street, et cetera. Those are finding the revival, the TODs where these little kind of, let's just call them for lack of a better term, they're little circular nodes that have these distances. um, They're coming into effect more again. And then even the definition of um, like 10 minute distances have been Uh, they've morphed over the past, even I'd say about 15 years where it was once, you know, just, it was the, the ring, right. You'd put a a little dot in the middle of your, what you wanted to plan, put the the 10 minute and five minute walking radius. And uh, now it's, it's become more complex because that doesn't necessarily work in different urban fabrics. So, you know, just as the crow flies, is different as the human walks. Those are two different things. So even if we represent it with, the, the little target right the walking yep. radius that's not actually indicative of really a 10 minute walking distance so we've seen again how these new settlements where we've come now are are kind of really warping our perception and making us hone those which I think is actually a really good thing making us hone those definitions that you know a 10 minute minute walking distance has to be kind of on the ground. Uh, versus as the crow flies, they're not it doesn't work like that, right? Yeah, uh, so we're becoming a little bit more sophisticated, which has been kind of interesting. but the the issue of scale uh, again, I, and I, I write it, I believe in the book and I, I'm like the jury's kind of still out on that one because we're just kind of at the crux uh, of that transition back into it. So I don't know where it's gonna lead. but uh, the fact that it it kind of went away and now it's coming back just almost on its own really speaks to uh, a condition where it, you know, it deserves its place at least mentioning in a potential law. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, I end with a little dot, dot, dot to be continued. Uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Up, like, yeah, you know, but it does look like uh, that, uh, that law was bang on.
1: Well, yeah, for sure. And, and I think the, the idea that it's a response, the, the push for the human scaled city is a response to Whatever time you want to put on it, century, century and a half of a focus on cities, primarily uh, at the system level, focusing on efficiency and technology. And then, you know, if if I could um, summarize a single message across most of the guests that we've had on the podcast as an example it would be remember the human beings
0: (laughs) and and it's really it's really funny that you know and i i catch some people saying this all the time where it's it's like actually you know i hate cars or whatever it's actually you don't hate cars you kind of there are people behind those little things that are, they're the ones that are, you know, running (laughs) reds and they're the ones that are cutting people off. It's, it's the people don't forget. It's always the people and it always will come back to it. And I think you're, you're bang on in so far that I think for a while we, we forgot about that, or at least we put it to the side uh, and kind of said, you know, we're going to let the technologies and let that really determine it and make that under the assumption that that stood in as a surrogate for a person. When in fact, as we've seen and we're seeing now, that's no surrogate. Like it's not, you can't, the logic of the machine isn't necessarily the logic of the human being. Uh, And as settlements in particular, um, particularly with now that we're seeing, you know, a lot of uh, in North America and the, the baby boomers aging, et cetera, like they're coming back again to the realization that, oh my God, you know, like I can no longer drive anymore. I can't have my license. I need to live in a place where I can walk. Right. I need to actually be able to go and live my life um, within walking distances. So you're seeing that, I think, is contributing to that uh, as well. Just this idea that, you know, you go back to the original settlements that didn't have these technologies to kind of work with, that uh, we can't forget that that's where it started and that's where it, it, it will always be. You know, as long as we are material beings kind of living in a material world, uh, we're going to have to cater to ourselves. And we can't kind of forget that this is where what it's all about. It's about us. And we have machines and we have these other things that help us do things for humans, for us as well. But we can't forget that it has to work for the most fundamental piece, which is us being able to kind of go and do something within a, a radius that's reasonable. And, you know, over time, um, I believe, uh, and this is what some of the more recent authors, uh, for example, Michael Batty, who is kind of known for um, his book, The The Science of Cities, recently wrote one called um, Inventing Future Cities, which is a, a really interesting one. And he winds up kind of cataloging uh, that roughly over the course of history, every settlement kind of settles on roughly a 30-minute radius as a whole, as the farthest reach. And Mm. the only thing that changed was the technology. So first it was, you know, the farthest reaches of the old walled cities were 30 minutes out, and you would walk in 30 minutes or whatever it was. And then when the car came in, it was 30 minutes still, but it was a 30 minute drive. And that 30 minute drive was different along a highway than it was, you know, along, let's just say, uh, you know, a residential street. And these different types of things began uh, kind of shaping those distances. But I think what that always points to me is that there's something kind of fundamental about it's about the human and humans are only willing to travel necessarily of their own volition, uh, I think, so far after it gets too far. Uh, you kind of lose something, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And the the how you fill up that half hour, what, whatever time frame you find yourself in. Um <clears throat> I keep coming back recently to Thaler and Sunstein's book Nudge and the concept of choice architecture and how I think still still too often um city build city builders will put the onus on the individual. Um and say, well, they they just chose this and people want to behave this way or move this way or what have you, not recognizing that the decisions they make greatly, greatly affect the decisions that individuals within that system make. And so if you have built a, a cities over the last century plus that are catering to the car and that's how you get around, then that's how people will make their decisions accordingly, you know, and vice versa. If you If you build it for humans, they will more than likely get out, get out their, uh, shoes and go for a walk.
0: (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like, I think that that decision-making stream that the, the implications of decisions actually, you know, that's what actually creates, um, that's what creates the options for the choice. Right. So, you know, if you go to a restaurant with only one choice on the menu, well, that's it. You're, you're done or, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) you leave. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but, the more options you kind of create, the more that people actually have that choice. And a lot of people, I think, you're bang on saying that you know a lot of people don't recognize that those initial those initial decisions actually really uh, really hone in what the choices are. So just mm-hmm. like you said, if you create something where only cars can get around at car distances, then really the choice is just that. That's it. Right? So you have no other choice. Yeah. So it makes sense that people living in such an environment would make an a make a choice that. Really, is no choice at all that, to be able to go and do that, uh, and it's a. I think, uh, particularly with planners, and uh, now I think they're hopefully becoming a little bit more aware. But uh, you know that disconnect, uh, I think, is is an important bridge that needs to to be um, reconnected again and uh, allow people to see that the implications, even at the policy level, or particularly at the policy level, perhaps, will um, have this ripple effect across. All of these different scales uh, down to the the choices that people make.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that that ripple effect of both scale and time that, uh, you know, with the relative permanence of urban structures, um, you know, you make a decision and you might not see the full consequence for a few decades and it'll take many more decades to change course from that decision because of how relatively permanent that infrastructure is. So, um, yeah, no small, no small challenge for the city builders of the world, but, um, (laughs) worth one, worth one worth uh, working on. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Um, so one, one thing you mentioned earlier, you you were talking about values and how those change over time and, and everything. Um, I wanted to ask you what's, when we're looking at values and the, how the built form of the city uh, expresses certain values, I was curious if you could maybe talk about what values are reflected, let's say between a dense urban core and a lower density suburban community. Uh, What are the values that are reflected in the difference between those kinds of urban forms?
0: Uh, There's, that's a great question. And it's one that I, I am, I kind of slice and dice in a number of different ways. On the, on the one hand, part of the things that I, I teach over and above the urban design piece is representation. So things like drawing, how, how cities have represented themselves to themselves uh, in many ways, yeah. uh, and kind of trying to dissect what that means yeah. and how it's expressed visually through things like drawings or models. Or data, any type of information, whether it's film, um, all of this stuff to kind of say, okay, how how do these things affect the world around us? And um, the interaction is actually exceedingly complex, uh, and it, it winds up kind of building itself around uh, a system, or let's just uh, let's let's call the the value system, a narrative system, like mm. every society its own narratives, its own worldview, its own perception of nature um, uh, that adopts certain methods of production, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And then these manifest themselves in the built world as almost a a one-to-one expression of it, Mm -hmm. at least for a short period of time, right? So uh, that's not to say that the suburban fabric – means the same as it does now, as it did when it was originally created. So you get kind of murky in, into that territory. But uh, the way I typically like to describe um, those things is visually. So if I were to, to let's just put up a, a, so let's not attach any meaning to anything, but just imagine a wall full of individual dots. Okay, mm-hmm. individual oh. And I were to ask someone to interpret that. Like, what does this mean? Like, what do you get out of this graphic? Just dot on white wall, black dot on white wall. What do you get from it? You'll usually get the same type of responses back, which is, you know, those things, there's a lot of space around them. There's the, each one of those is individual, right? They, they have a particular order and system to them, depending on how I do the dots that might speak to another different ordering principle. But usually there is, uh, with respect to kind of the dots on white page, black dots on white page, this idea that it's about the dots, right? It's about Mm -hmm. the dots. And what's interesting is when you morph that into a suburban pattern, which is effectively what it is, right? So suburban patterns, when you see a map of a thing, we already imbue it with meaning, right? It's like, Oh, that looks like a house. So that is a house. Therefore, that's a city that's a neighborhood, whatever that is. But when you abstract it to the, to the point of dots, then other people's uh, kind of perceptions of it change, especially if you don't tell them that it's houses, right? Mm. So all of a sudden, there's a a certain clarity where people can understand what the pattern actually means as a pattern in and of itself. Uh, So when something like the suburban pattern, like the single family, really kind of embodies that idea, and I would say graphically, because it started out uh, as an image first. So it, it didn't get built first right it started out as here's a drawing of it and this is what we believe right. in the future of it so it's people interpreting drawings first right <laughs> representations uh, and those things are resonating with their value system which is what's making them say hey you know what yeah i'm feeling this right this pattern it is what I believe to be true, Whatever, whether it's Broadacre City from Frank Lloyd Wright or Corbusier.
1: Broadacre City was a suburban development vision by the famous architect Frank Lloyd Wright. The concept would provide each U.S. family with one acre of land. In many ways, this concept was the exact opposite of transit-oriented development. This suburban utopia vision was never built to its full scale. Le Corbusier was a Swiss-French architect known as a pioneer of modern architecture and urban planning. Known for his futuristic city schemes, not to mention his thick-framed black glasses, Le Corbusier has been criticized for the lack of pedestrian scale in his designs.
0: Each one of them had a representation first that took their value system and their ideas and represented it in a way that made it tangible to them but also to others. And when that happens, their value systems either coincide, and people are like, "Oh, I want to build that," or they don't." And they say, "You know that's an outrageous proposal. Like it'll never mm-hmm. be done." Um, so what winds up happening with those, if you go through the exercise of of understanding kind of the aggregate versus the isolated, let's just call those two different patterns, different values are really embedded in the in those systems as representations. One is highly individual. Right. Which is prized in the form if once you now encode land values and, you know, things like enclosures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the primacy of the single family lot, uh, how it relates to its neighbors, um, it, it's, its interaction with neighbors is only through another mechanism like the street. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So people meet on the street. They won't meet in necessarily in individual lots because those are individual. And that's what comes out with the pattern. Right. So when you're talking about aggregates, so things like, uh, you know, denser medieval structures or high rises, different things uh, are at play, arguably, uh, in terms of the value system. Uh, One could argue, you know, a mid rise versus a high rise has two different value systems associated with it Um, insofar that, you know, the high rise is really a a mechanism of economy. Right. Like Mm -hmm. there's it it may, it allows someone in this system to make uh, to maximize the amount of money on a given lot with the technologies that we have in one point that's what it does now would people choose to live in those outside of the system the logic system that we have now to build it i'm not necessarily convinced of that i don't think that like high rise structures they have the semblance of, you know what, it's, it's a community, it's a vertical community instead of a horizontal community, but it they don't function like that, right? You have fobs that don't allow people to go from floor to floor, right? You have all these things that try and maintain like an, these things in isolation, even though they're super dense in these high, you know, 20 story towers or however high they are,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: which I think is again, fundamentally different than say a uh, 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 mid rise, you know, Building um, with a low-to-the-ground commercial base that has different mechanisms associated with it and different value systems. So the the one where uh, I think of the two that you mentioned, the the system, the value system behind the the single-family kind of standard quote-unquote suburban model is much more straightforward than the the denser aggregate model because the dense the denser aggregate model has many more. Um, variations over time, right? Right. There are different ones that have, you know, little courtyards in between other ones that have no courtyards, other ones that have high rises and glass towers. These are all fundamentally different in terms of the value systems that they embody. Uh, So that's a little bit more difficult. And I tried to give you at least two examples uh, in terms of kind of like the, the high rise and its relationship to economy and, and, uh, and really developer driven um, mentality, profit, um, and then a mid rise, which might have over the course of time has had many different variations, right. From the, right. Gotcha. if you look at the, uh, Amsterdam row home, uh, all the way through to, uh, you know, the, uh, Roman single or the shotgun house, uh, of, uh, which is a single family model shotgun house in, in New Orleans, uh, uh, or the San Francisco Row House. Like all of these things have had different values, even though the form is kind of similar their values are slightly different in each one which i think again makes it really interesting
1: hmm yeah and I think that that's one of the things as i as I travel around with uh, my friends and family that um, you know might not think about cities as much as I do um, I, that's that's one of the interesting almost little games you can play is when you look at these various forms what what values do they reflect back and embody um, and it, yeah like you say it makes it very interesting and some of it's a uh, guesswork and you you can get a lot of intelligence by chatting with local folks but it's uh it's certainly um a very interesting way to navigate a city and explore it for sure yeah yeah um okay so a couple of uh relatively quick questions for you uh if there, there's a lot of laws that you have in in your book and we've talked about just a few of them and, and you can glean from uh, our conversation how dense they are um if you wanted listeners to have one key takeaway about settlements, what would that be?
0: Oh boy. That was a, that's a tough question. That's a doozy of a question. I thought you said this was going to be simple, Uh,
1: simple, but not uh, easy.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think one of the big things I think with settlements, um, uh, I'll, I'll be, let's just even hone it a little bit more so that I can hone this response. Uh, contemporary settlements. Uh, Let's let's just kind of leave the the historical ones behind and say about kind of settlements now. Um, I think there are a few things that I would wind up saying. One, I think, is that you can't forget about the value system there. I think, again, that's fundamental to understand. Uh, And the fact that now more than ever, they work across scales, that they're part of uh, kind of things that happen at the tactile level, you know, from the the things that you touch and you see really on the everyday to kind of bigger systems um, that deal with watersheds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that those two are going to be fundamental and are fundamental, have always been fundamental, um, and that we have to remember those. Now, mm-hmm. The third one, which I, I kind of touched upon a little bit already, um, is really one of the uh, almost more of something into the future. And I, and I think that we wind up really missing a lot of the discussion in and around cities. In many ways, I I often think I don't necessarily state it uh, because if I stated, I'd quickly get lambasted. Um, (laughs) But I think that it's almost irrelevant already. Like, so a lot of the discussions I know that like, for example, Vancouver is uh, interestingly and and wonderfully, I think it's a great initiative. there they're trying to build up a citywide plan. The first, uh, in its history, a citywide plan, great idea. Um, but it works as a system now. So Mm -hmm. no matter how great this thing is, like we can make the most utopian city in the world. Right. But if it's not part of a system that works in the same way that gets lost, Right. right? So it could be the greenest thing, you know, it's, Tiny, tiny, ten square by ten square kilometer—you uh, know—little footprint couldn't be the best thing in the world. Yeah, everyone could bike and walk everywhere. But blah, blah, blah. but if outside of city limits, the moment that you cross the boundary line with another municipality, it goes into standard status quo uh, urban fabric and thinking. Then really, it kind of misses the point. You might be lucky enough to be in this little utopian silo, if it ever turned into that. But at the end of the day, globally, that's what our problems are not local anymore. They're all global, right? You look at the the recent, uh, the recent report that came out about extinction levels, you know, one million potential uh, animals going extinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at systems now that, um, now natural systems. Uh, I was recently reading uh, another great book uh, called Darwin uh, Comes to Town um, by... Uh, Mena Schiltswisen. I think I totally destroyed that name, <laughs> but uh, that was the best I could do. And he talks about how how flora and fauna have now adapted uh, in, to cities so completely now uh, in certain species that if you eradicate cities, you are also making animals and plants extinct like it's a it's a lose-lose situation if because the idea that's like you know what if we raised all the cities everything would go back to normal and you know the world would be a a better place we've reached the point and the scale of our settlements has reached the point where now it's its own fragmentary ecosystem right Mm. so Mm -hmm. to be to keep thinking about these dichotomies that have been part of our lexicon of discussion right whether you know it's You know, cities and nature or or nature, like all these things, I I keep looking at these and I'm like, man, this is outdated. Like we've we've already, no matter how good we do with that definition, it's already gone because that distinction, some of these distinctions have now been obliterated. Like Vancouver, can Vancouver really be, as a city, be dissociated from its surrounding metro Vancouver area? I don't think so. They're just so – intimately integrated in how they work and function and how people move and that it's no longer kind of relevant to talk like that. So I think that there's a a big thing. And this is actually the I I would say the biggest challenge. And this is what, again, uh, Daxiadis said this in 68, for goodness sakes. uh, He went up. One of the problems is just just in governance, period. Like that's going to be a design problem in and of itself. We have to learn how to govern multi-systemic elements and settlements working as a whole. And you could see how this can quickly lead to a dystopian future, right? Like you could see how it can quickly go to, hey, just, you know, we're going to get a handful of people that will govern, you know, like a hundred cities. Like that could be catastrophic,
1: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
0: On the other hand, it can't be just necessarily willy-nilly like oh we're not going to plan anything anymore like that's it it's it's we're just going to see what happens because again that just doesn't work either so there's this kind of weird moment that we're in right now where we're we're seeing that and finally recognizing that crossover that we've passed that point of no return that there are there the cities and settlements of the future are no longer in isolation like they Used to be, you know, centuries ago. Um, and it, what's so funny about Doxiadis is that he pinpoints a date, which I love the <sighs> bombastic boldness of that. He's like, it happened on September twenty sixth, eighteen twenty five. That's the day that the first public passenger rail uh, went in the UK, and it took people from one city to another. And he said, from that point on, cities were never the same, right? All of a sudden, they could work in systems. And we see that just play itself out. And this idea that, uh, you know, when he came out with this, of the little information that I have, which is amazing about this, this uh, planner, because he was so big at the time that, as I mentioned in the book, he he was on the cover of Time magazine. And I, I'm like, wow, wow, on the cover of Time magazine. How big is that? And ever. And <laughs> since he passed away, like, again, he just fell into like no one knows really. I couldn't even find much about him. Yeah, uh, which that's is wild. Insane. Yeah, it's a totally weird scenario. But um What wound up happening, I think one of his bombastic crazy claims was I mentioned kind of earlier on that there was he had different categories of settlements, one that went from the human to this idea of a globalized city, that the city, the settlement, the ultimate settlement is going to be planet Earth. So that's what he said in 68 um, and shortly thereafter. And he was, you know, you can imagine the outrage. It's like, what the world, a giant city? Really? That's impossible, right? Mm -hmm. And sure enough, you have all these things that now you look at them uh, and you're like, you know, even if you look at, say, this isn't the the best example, but this was arguably one of the first examples that came out in popular media was NASA's uh, view of the the world at night that wound up having, oh my God, it's like, holy smokes, like, this whole thing is bright, except for these small pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was this idea that that one, again, when that came out uh, uh, a few years back, that people were like, oh, man, there's still there's still hope. Look at these dark spots, right? Like these dark spots, that's that's wilderness. Now, more recently, there was another map that came out, not by NASA, but by another research company that looked at, at the city through roads. So it mapped every road in the world. And oh. it has it along like a globe. Again, another representation. And it is everywhere. There are streets everywhere. All those Mm -hmm. little spots, those little dark spots in NASA's uh, shot are all streets. And you wind up – I remember when I first saw it. I first saw it uh, last year. I'm like, there it is. Doxiatis just – he had it, right? Mm -hmm. He figured – one day and people were like, oh, there's no way this would ever happen. He said, "One day it will be the world." And sure enough, here we are in 2019 with this representation. And just, I, I looked at it in just awe and fright and joy. I, I, it was just like one of those weird. I'm like,
1: yeah.
0: I'm kind of happy that he figured it out, and that it, like there was like there was joy there. On the other hand, I was like, oh my god, this is scary stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea the the of the tripartite that I said, one with values, the other one with scale, the other one of, of systems, that the world now and cities now are part of a system. And I think that as we move forward, settlements and the way that people start thinking about settlements, we have to really, really break those old, those old, old definitions of what, what a city and a settlement is. I think they've now mashed into just This amorphous blob of communication networks and flight paths and and car distances and walking distances, like even transportation over the past 15 years has diversified, even at the smaller scale, like hoverboards, skateboards, electric bikes those little uni wheel things that I don't even know what they're called, but I see them all the <laughs> place. Like, Oh my God. Like even at the smaller scale level of transportation and those speeds are all different. Someone walking is different than someone on a hoverboard. It's different than someone on a bike is different than someone on an electric skateboard. Like, like these things are diversifying at rates that, uh, that are exponential and we're not even discussing them. Right? Like we're still into the, you know, sidewalks. Now it's expanded to bike lanes and and, you know, streets where it's like, actually, you know, where's the hoverboard lane and the skateboard mm-hmm. lane? And the mm-hmm. bikes and the, like, I, I think a lot of our discussions are are um, are again are are irrelevant, even though they're at the forefront of planning now in the grand scheme of things. They're they're already outdated. They're the dinosaurs of, of these things. And I think that we're going to have to be more aware of these systems and the complexity of how these systems are interacting in order to really if we're really, really serious about Um, making a better future for ourselves and the planet. And uh, like, I really think that we need to take those systems seriously and actually really go after understanding as difficult as it is, the complexity of that system and then more over and above what to do on the ground, how to even start governing it, I think is going to be a really, really big issue.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just the example of um, near... Global level governance uh, and the complexity and the decisions that need to happen right down to the level of a sidewalk or a bike lane, and that there's now seven different modes uh, of transportation. And uh, I think really what that does is it, I mean, for it, it would be natural for a human being to throw their hands up and say, "To hell with it! This is too hard." But I think for those that uh, are tasked or tasked with, or choose to get involved in the 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 process and the endeavor of building cities, the the fundamental skill or mindset of understanding systems and being able to um, be uh, comfortable, I guess, with the complexity is something that's just completely vital and the the kind of outdated model of let's just regulate the details and everything will work out fine. Uh, I think that's, you know, the, all that you described just speaks to why um, uh, all the professions that are involved in city building and everything just need to um, continually broaden their scope and reconsider their skill sets uh, in the context of these big, ridiculously complex challenges. Because, um, yeah, like I say, from a, let's say an urban planning perspective, just having better rules, um, at a local level or on a building site are just not going to, they're not going to cut it. And so we need, yeah. uh, we need a, a bigger, bigger consideration of what, what solutions mean in, in this, uh, urban age that we're in.
0: Yeah. And I think there's, there's even some, uh, even a smaller potentially, well, it's actually bigger in, in the grand scheme of things, but something that I think that, um, your podcast, for example, is playing a big part in um, and uh, oddly enough, again, Daxiatis puts his his hat into that as well. At the, I think it's in the in the uh, uh, one of the conclusions of one of his books that he had, had written. I think it was Acumenopolis was a book that he had written at the end. is like, you know what? Part of the, the thing about planning and planners as we move forward with settlements and all this complexity is that we also need to know how to how to how to talk about it at a simple level uh which i think is important for a podcast like yours to kind of see you know let's get rid of all the the jargon which we know is is right in inherent as a part of the field um and and try and talk to this at the at a very just fundamental level
1: very Mm -hmm. simple Mm -hmm.
0: and he was he was going uh, again in so far it's only like a paragraph or something but i was laughing at it because being part of the the kind of spacing vancouver thing and Part of uh, what I wanted to do with mine, he was like, you know what? If you, as a researcher, and he was talking to the academics, if if you as a researcher cannot write and you can't do this and do it for you, team up with a journalist. Go do yeah. it right now <laughs> and make your stuff relevant. Yeah. There was a there was a certain urgency that I think was again that we've kind of lost. I think that was actually part of the ethos of the '60s and '70s. Mm-hmm. Like when you his work, it's kind of like like he's. He's Adam He's like, we got to do this. Like the time is now, like we cannot stop. This is happening. It's right here. It's right on the doorstep. We have to do this. And whatever it takes, get rid of your pretenses. If you're an academic or whatever, you know, you have to engage the public. You have to talk to people at their level. You have to, you have to find a way to translate what you're doing into the popular masses. Because again, law one He's like, if the masses don't buy into this and it doesn't become part of their value system, then it's not going to happen. Period. Yep, yep right? for sure. So, so I, I think again, and kudos uh, uh, again to uh, a podcast like this that begins to try and say, okay, you know, we're going to try and do that. We're going to try and we're going to talk to these people, and we're going to try and take take away the pretense and really make it so that the fundamental issues are are front center and clear. Right, George. Mm-hmm. We're all in this together, and we need that. So I think that that's a, a really, again, I, I guess, an understated part of also what needs to be done. Part of part of governance, I would say, that is, is that could be part of governance uh, in terms of explaining, not only understanding the complexity of the system, but being able to explain it in a simple way. Right? Just yeah. here it is. Yeah. Right?
1: Here yeah, it for is. sure. For sure okay um well we've uh, covered a lot of ground and i can see we're gonna perhaps have to uh, have another conversation and, and uh keep it going uh but but <laughs> I uh, be awesome um but one uh, one question we uh we wrap up um with all our guests is uh can you tell me uh, about a city that you love and why you love it oh i love this i was waiting for this question
0: <laughs> i've been listening to your podcast so i knew what, what was coming down the pipeline
1: you're not uh, gonna get angry at me like everybody else <laughs> Don't make me pick yeah. one.
0: <laughs> I, I think again, I think it's true. I think I love. I love different cities. I've had the the honor and the pleasure, and I, I you know, I've had the opportunity to travel a, a number of different places that I'm always always thankful for, even uh, even close by, even within North America and uh, and around the world. Um, so I, I and being in the profession that I'm in, uh, I love different things about different cities uh, so if you wanted to be specific I could go specific but I think it, the the broad answer is if I had to choose one currently that uh, I would say is just um, pretty amazing at almost all levels like it has its own problems mind you of course but uh, I'd have to choose Barcelona uh, I think that Barcelona kind of has uh, you know its history, I would. I always when I describe Barcelona, I always say that it's kind of going through right now. I think it's one of the few cities that I would say is really going through a golden age in many ways, politically, Mm. um, uh, formally, in terms of its fabric. I think that it's part of it. A big part of it is because of its history. Uh, It had a a very rough history with repression, the Catalonia, and like there was a whole the Franco years. But that bred a certain type of society with very specific values that are very, very um, specific to Barcelona. Like even if you go to other parts of Spain, which I had the opportunity to do um, a couple of years ago, it's just not – it's not the same. There is something palpably different that happens there in the people, uh, in how they treat and they respect their environments, in their perceptions of history, in their kind of – progressiveness and willingness to experiment uh, with different types of models yet respect their past in a very uh, genuine way um, and it's just an astoundingly beautiful city at the end of the day it's just a aesthetically when you walk around um, different parts of the the city proper whether you go through um, you know the Sevda's plan with the hexagonal blocks uh, or the old, like there's something very, very, very beautiful about it. And it's one of the, the few places, uh, the only place that I visited, you can walk through about two, something about 15 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, where you could just, you can walk from the old town, all the way to the edge of the Cerda's plan right near Gracia, and just see it change. You could see the mentality, you could see the values, you could see everything change within this short kind of comp- It's almost like a time-lapse of urbanism in many ways right that's yeah. like oh my god I can do this in real time in real time it's a time-lapse that it's uh, just so so such a powerful city uh to be in and, and I know like some of the there again so many other amazing cities uh I know Larry Beasley when I was listening to that one he chose Paris Paris has its own thing going and um but I, I'd have to after thinking about this and knowing yeah. this was coming down the pipeline, <laughs> I, think, I think I would still have to choose Barcelona. I, I can't imagine any other city that uh, really embodies the a very kind of progressive uh, movement, a youth, uh, like everything about mm-hmm. it. Now it's almost, it's too successful now for its own good, yeah. uh, unfortunately. But I think that that success came from a, from a genuine place. I think that it versus trying yep. it, trying to be fabricated, say from, you know, a, a, a body that's uh, really mission is to do tourism. Like I think it, sure. it was founded on the genuine values of the people there. And it just so happened that when people recognized it, it's like, Oh my God, it's, it's amazing. Right. And everyone yeah. wants to now go there.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. So that would well, be my choice it's uh it's the best (laughs) it's uh with with each with the i've been there twice in the last two years and i uh studied for a semester of a master's degree there it's it's uh amazing and i think what i'm gonna do i think you might be the last person that says barcelona on the on the podcast because i think my question in the future will be tell me about a city that you love that's not barcelona and why (laughs) Because I think about a third of our of our guests have all have all said it and it's all they all have great reasons, just like you did. (laughs) If you want to read Eric's book, you can get it on Amazon and on Smashwords. The link is in our show notes. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.